Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Hey everyone, when you imagine a healthy metabolism, chances are you don't think about your kidneys. Well, you should. According to Dr. Richard Johnson, metabolic syndrome and early kidney disease are deeply intertwined. The more markers of metabolic dysfunction you have, like high blood pressure, high cholesterol, high uric acid, and so on, the higher the chance you have chronic kidney disease. The kicker, kidney disease remains silent until it becomes a major issue. Richard is a professor of medicine at the University of Colorado and is board certified in internal medicine, infectious diseases, and kidney disease. He has researched obesity and diabetes for over 20 years with a special interest in the role of sugar and uric acid. This episode is the ultimate guide to kidney health. Richard explains sneaky signs of kidney disease, what tests to ask for at your doctor, and and how to eat for optimal kidney function. We also get into how to prevent kidney stones. If you've ever dealt with this intense pain of passing a kidney stone, trust me, you'll want to listen. I could have talked to Richard for hours, and we only scratched the surface when it comes to sugar and kidney health. We also didn't even get into the more complex, controversial areas of kidney health, oxalates and dairy. Just so you know, I've already asked him to come back on the show where we'll do a much deeper dive on all of those, so stay tuned for a part two episode with Richard this fall. Rick, welcome. Thank you, Jason. It's really a pleasure to be on your show. Great to have you here. I am fascinated by your work. And let's start there. Provide a little bit of detail about your background and the focus of what you do. Well, uh, what I'm doing is I'm studying metabolic syndrome, obesity, diabetes, uh, you know, these classic diseases. My background is sort of interesting because I trained uh, as a kidney physician and I'm a kidney doctor. And the way I ended up studying sugar and metabolic syndrome was because I was very interested in the cause of high blood pressure, which is thought to be relate to the kidney. Uh, and I was studying high blood pressure and we came up with the interesting finding that just subtle damage to the kidney can make the kidney have trouble excreting salt. And when that happens, uh, you start developing hypertension and we created all these animal models of hypertension by just tweaking small changes in the kidney. And, uh, and today, it's, uh, there's a lot of people that believe that this is the major mechanism driving hypertension, low-grade injury to the kidney and, and inflammation. And when we were studying this, uh, we started saying, well, what causes the kidney injury? And we realized that there was a very strong association with a substance called uric acid. And uric acid is a kind of a breakdown product uh, of DNA and, uh, you know, nucleic acids. It's like uh, all of our cells have, you know, RNA and DNA and not all, but, um, but most of our cells have it. And when that stuff gets turned over, it makes uric acid and then we have to get rid of it. And uh, so everybody has some uric acid in their blood and certain foods raise uric acid more than others. And we found that uric acid, when it's high, it could tweak and cause this low grade damage in the kidney that made hypertension. So suddenly I became a uric acid doctor and started studying what uric acid does, how it works, what makes it go up. And, you know, I became curious, you know, what was making the uric acid go up in these people who are developing high blood pressure. And uh, lo and behold, we discovered or we started studying sugar because table sugar and high fructose corn syrup raise uric acid. And when we started studying that, we realized that the uric acid produced by the uh, in response to eating sugar was actually uh, playing a role in not just high blood pressure and kidney disease, but also in obesity and metabolic syndrome. And, and, uh, you know, and it was working through a mechanism that didn't involve calories. And at that time, everyone was thinking obesity was driven by calories. And here suddenly we were able to show that there was this substance that was being produced uh, from eating sugar that could cause hypertension and and could help drive obesity independently of calories. And then I knew I was in the, it's finding something that was a little bit more important than, uh, than I had 
you know, than just kidney disease that we were actually uh, falling into a, a story that got, became bigger and bigger. And I started studying sugar uh, and high fructose corn syrup and how it could cause obesity and diabetes. And that took me into studies that included doing studies in the wild and nature, you know, hibernating animals. And, you know, I, 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 you know, went crazy about doing research in all kinds of areas. And it's opened up uh, a story that's pretty big, you know, about what drives obesity, diabetes, and even diseases like uh, behavioral issues, dementia. You know, this pathway turns out to be a very, very major pathway in biology. So that's how it happened. <laughs> it's an important story. And let's start with kidneys. That one, you know, 15% of the population has kidney disease. It's one we don't tend to hear a lot about. That hits home for me personally. My mother, who's 73, really healthy, fit, active, mobile woman, all of a sudden had to have one of her kidneys removed. You know, I looked at her labs, they were normal and then they weren't, and then they got worse, and then boom, had to get a kidney removed. And from my understanding and going through the process with her, uh, her story isn't that uncommon and that we're not so good at identifying early stage issues in the kidney as we are through someone uh, like someone who's concerned about cardiovascular disease, where if you look at, you know, your LP little a, your APOB, do a CAC score, you can kind of assess your risk and track that. If one's concerned about kidney disease, what should they look for in the early on? So what happened to my mother doesn't happen to someone who's listening. I'm going to take you on a little story about this. So, um, so we know that the two major causes of kidney disease are diabetes and high blood pressure. There are lots of other causes, but if you look at uh, people who are developing kidney failure, diabetes makes up about a third of them and another 20, 25% are high blood pressure. So these are the, yeah, these are, and often people have both. And so diabetes and high blood pressure are the two major causes of kidney disease. Now that's severe kidney disease, but very mild kidney disease is quite common. And it turns out that it's particularly observed in people who are uh, pre-diabetic and prehypertensive, and um, and we call it metabolic syndrome. So the average, you know, one quarter of our population, one quarter of adults, are insulin resistant, are overweight or obese. Uh, actually, even higher, for, you know, for that. But but these people that are have what we call metabolic syndrome, where you're overweight, you're insulin resistant, you have high triglycerides. This is associated with gout, uh, with high uric acid, and with kidney disease. And the number one uh, precursor to diabetes and high blood pressure is metabolic syndrome, being overweight and insulin resistant. And that syndrome is associated with early kidney disease. In fact, it's part of the spectrum. So when, you, uh, when, when people are start gaining weight, uh, it's often associated with insulin resistance, with fatty liver. You've probably heard about the fatty liver being an issue. Uh, high blood pressure, elevated triglycerides, low HDL cholesterol, inflammation. You know, you can measure inflammation in the blood. There's a test called C-reactive protein. And it goes up in people with metabolic syndrome. And so does uh, the early, earliest signs of kidney disease. In fact, some studies have shown that if you take these, quote, criteria for metabolic syndrome, the more criteria you have, the higher the chance you have chronic kidney disease. And yet it's silent. No one knows they have chronic kidney disease at that stage. It's just a blood test. Um, and if you go in and you want to know if, you're, if you do have kidney disease, ask your doctor to measure your kidney function. And what they'll do is they'll measure a substance called creatinine. And then they put it in a formula based on your age and 
other factors, and they come up with a measurement of what your kidney function is. And a normal, normally our kidney function is a value of 90 or higher, maybe 100 or higher. It's referring to how much blood you can clean uh, in a minute. And it's like 100 mils per minute that you can clean your blood effectively. But as you, as you develop kidney disease, this ability to clear the material from the blood uh, gets worse. And, you know, and when it gets down to 10 mils per minute uh, instead of 100, people need dialysis. So when, when it gets really bad, you know you have kidney disease because you feel lousy, you feel tired, you can't sleep. Well, uh, you get, have to get up many times during the night to urinate. You get anemic. So when, when you have, when kidney disease is bad, it's uh, symptomatic. But for, you know, for a long period of time, you can be losing kidney function and not know it. So there are a lot of people with, with chronic kidney disease. They're mainly people with metabolic syndrome. Uh, but you can, you, of course, you can get kidney disease from other causes too. But And there, there are other blood tests, as you had mentioned to me before the show started, like cystatin C, um, that you can measure. Uh, one of the problems with creatinine is if you're taking creatine supplements, for example, like you're an athlete and you're taking creatine supplements, it makes your creatinine go up, but it's not from reduced kidney function. It's right because you're eating creatinine creatine and likewise if you happen to be like a nfl football player somebody who's really muscular a weightlifter uh your your muscle is you have more muscle than the average person and creatine comes out of the muscle so if you have a lot of muscle then your creatine will tend to be higher as well so uh not everyone with a high creatine creatinine one's creatine one's creatinine Creatine can be used to make creatinine. Creatinine is the kidney test. And not everybody with an elevated creatinine has kidney disease and because you can have a lot of muscle. And not everyone with a low creatinine does not have kidney disease because if you are, are very thin and you have a loss of muscle, even, quote, a normal creatinine might turn out to be uh, abnormal for you. Uh, anyway. So chronic kidney disease is common, especially it goes up as we get older. It's not particularly scary because mild chronic kidney disease is usually very well tolerated. It increases your risk for blood, high blood pressure a little bit. They go together. But um, uh, not until the kidney function that we, we give them stages like stage one, two, three, four, five. Now, if you have stage four or five, that's bad. Stage five is getting close to dialysis. And so, um, you know, you should be seeing a kidney specialist. But if you have stage one, two, or even early stage three, uh, usually it's not a problem. But you should see a kidney doctor to make sure you don't have one of these kidney diseases that progresses more rapidly. So, and they'll look at your urine and things like that. So it sounds like, if someone wants to get some blood work done, cystatin C, it's not creatinine can be an inaccurate for all of the reasons with, with regards to how muscular you are. Uh, is it cystatin C alone or EGFR or, or is, is cystatin C kind of the APOB for? Yeah, yeah. I mean, creatinine is the typical test everyone uses. Um, it's in the standard chemistry profile. So everybody who gets blood work gets the creatinine and that's where you should start. And, um, but if you're really muscular or if you have no muscle, probably, uh, you know, it wouldn't hurt to get a cystatin C right off the bat. That's a, another test that measures kidney function. It's not dependent on muscle mass, um, but it's more expensive. It's a specialty test. Um, uh, it's not gonna be done by your routine, routinely by your doctor. But if you let's say you have, let's say that you you're working out and your your creatinine is a little bit high, or they tell you that your kidney function is low. And re, remember, I told you that normal is a hundred or higher. When we start thinking low, we say less than sixty. So that's kind of the magic number. 
Um, and some people, you know, just as we get older, you know, when you get into your 70s or 80s, normal kidney function for an 80-year-old probably is around 60. And so if you're 80 and it's 60, I wouldn't worry at all because uh, that's pretty much normal for an 80-year-old. But uh, it is often called CKD, chronic kidney disease stage 3. And some people think it's a misnomer if you're 80 because it's sort of the normal. One of the main reasons to know if your kidney function is low, though, is it can affect the dose of drugs you take. So let's say that you're taking a drug that is eliminated by the kidney. Well, if your kidney functions one half of normal, you probably want to take one half the dose of the drug. Um, and so uh, being aware of whether or not you have kidney, uh, a kidney problem is a good thing to know. And when you see your doctor, um, they, when they do a blood test, almost always they're measuring the kidney function. Uh, so you can ask them, you know, is my kidney function normal? And, um, and if it's not, uh, you know, then when you, when a doctor prescribes a medicine for you, Say to the doctor, you know, I have uh, some kidney disease. My kidney function is, you know, uh, CKD stage three, or my creatinine is elevated, or my, you know, my GFR or is 60. This is that number. Whatever. Just say that you have a kidney issue. Could it affect the dosing of my drug? And then the doctor will check and make sure that the dose that you get is correct. And, you know, in this world, getting, uh, you know, there's often problems with medications being given too high or too low. So knowing if you have a kidney problem is a good idea, just like if you have a liver problem. Those are the two organs that, you know, excrete the drug or metabolize the drugs we, we get. So those are the two main ones. So if you have liver disease, you probably should tell that to your doctor as well. If you're getting a drug, and you mentioned so there's eGFR, is that as can that is that also present inaccuracies like creatinine? So the creatinine, just to give you an idea, so here's the way it works: a normal creatinine is like around one, okay, and so if if, uh, if it goes to two, it turns out that that means that your kidney function halved. So when your it goes up as your kidney function goes down. So it goes from one to two, you've had your kidney function. Now, if you have your kidney function again, it will go from two to four, you know, so it's like that. It's kind of one over the creatinine is equal to what your kidney function is. So the EGFR is a result of the creatinine. So if the creatinine's off, the EGFR is going to be off. Right. So the EGFR is calculated from the creatinine. And uh, and what's what's amazing is that when the creatinine goes from one to two, you lose like 50% of your kidney function. But if your creatinine goes from six to, to seven, it, it, you only lose about a sixth of your kidney function because of the way it works. Right. But I think the, the PSA here is if you're muscular, get the cystatin C. That's, that's the gold standard test you want. I get referred, you know, muscular guys come in and they say, I've, I've been told I have kidney disease. I say, you take creatine? They go, yeah. And then I, you know, measure cystatin C and it's normal. Or they come in and, uh, and they're like muscle men. And, and it can happen with women too. Muscular women will have a higher creatinine. Got it. Well, I, look, I think this is an, that's an important message. I think if anyone gets something from the show, cystatin C. Um, so my other question on kidneys what I've, what my mother's found deeply frustrating, and and I, I empathize with her. There is so much conflicting advice on what to eat and what not to eat for your kidneys, and I've tried to help her here. So I'm curious your quick take on how should one eat for optimal kidney health, like uh, foods to avoid, foods to enjoy. Maybe spend a moment there. Okay, well, first I'll just give you the advice and then we can explain why. But the first advice is remember I told you that um, that sugar can cause uric acid to go up and uric acid can cause low-grade kidney damage. 
And, um, and for sure, we can take uh, obese animals, and if we put them on high-sugar diet, not only do they get overweight and pre-diabetic and even diabetic, but we will accelerate their kidney disease. There is just absolutely no doubt that high-sugar diets make kidney disease worse, and it's been shown in people. Um, and so... For sure, things like soft drinks, which are filled with sugar, uh, sugary desserts, they can all make kidney disease worse. There is, it's just absolutely certain. And interestingly, it's the fructose that's really the component that drives it. Fruit, when you eat table sugar, there's glucose and fructose that make up table sugar. So table sugar is actually two sugars in one. And it, in, it's called the disaccharide because it's uh, actually a glucose molecule and a fructose molecule, and they're bound together. And then when you eat the sugar, they separate in the gut, and then you absorb the glucose and you absorb the fructose. And the fructose is the driver of the uric acid and of the kidney disease. And so fructose is really the culprit. Now, interestingly and sadly, when you eat a lot of glucose, uh, if it goes starts going up in your blood, like from carbs, like uh, starchy foods, like uh, potatoes and rice, there the, there's so much starch that the you you kind of flood your system with glucose, and so some glucose goes can go up quite high in the liver and in the blood, and they call it high glycemic foods. And these when that happens. It stimulates insulin, which helps drive fat, but it also produces, when there's high glucose, it can be converted over to fructose. And when it gets converted to fructose, that will also accelerate kidney disease. But really, sugar and high fructose corn syrup, which are really high in fructose, those are the two main drivers. And natural fruit does not, even though it contains some fructose, it's like so much less than um, than in like a soft drink that uh, it's really minimal. It's like three to eight grams. And, and actually, it's been shown that the first four or five grams of fructose gets inactivated in the gut. So you're really, if you're eating an eight gram fructose apple, an apple that has eight grams of fructose, you're probably only getting about three grams to the liver. So, I mean, that will... Uh, you know, activate some of these processes, but it's very small amounts. And, you know, the fruit contains fiber and pulp and vitamins and uh, vitamin C and other things that are really good. So it turns out natural fruits really don't accelerate kidney disease at all. They don't really cause metabolic syndrome, even though it's fructose. But if you drink fruit juice, or if you eat some fruits that are really high in fructose, like dates and figs, and you eat a lot of those, you're going to get into trouble. And so fruit juices and, uh, you know, figs and dates, I don't recommend. And if you do eat natural fruits, don't eat like a bowl of grapes. Eat some grapes. And, and eating some natural fruits with each meal is fine. Just don't eat a huge amount at one setting. So, so uh, fructose absolutely can drive kidney disease. It's been shown in animals. It's been shown epidemiologically. Um, and so that's, if you do have kidney disease, cut back on sugar. Okay, that's for sure. Now, the second thing is, interestingly, really high protein diets are bad. And if you take an animal with kidney disease and you put it on a very high protein diet, you can actually drive the kidney disease. And it's, it's associated with an increase in uric acid because you can get uric acid from some proteins. Now, typically, it's uh, proteins that are, are processed, processed meats um, that are particularly bad because they produce a lot more uric acid because when you process meat, you release the glutamate from the tissues and some of the uh, nucleotides. And, um, and uh, we just, I just did this study in, in lions 
and tigers, you know, I get very involved in. And, you know, the, uh, these cats are dying of kidney failure. Um, domestic cats are dying from kidney disease. Uh, it's, the, it's an epidemic and no one really knows the cause. And it's also occurring in the, um, you know, in the safari parks and in the zoos. And so um, working with a group in Vienna that um, we studied 90 large cats, tigers, cheetahs, lions, uh, and um, leopards. And two thirds of them had chronic kidney disease. Unbelievable. And when we looked at what the risk factor was red meat, when they eat the whole prey, they didn't get kidney disease very much, or if they eat, you know, bone with the bone, but when you just give them pure red meat, it's too much. And if you take them, an animal with chronic kidney disease and you give it a high protein diet, um, you know, it's, it's bad. Now, this led many scientists to think that a low protein diet might actually be good for, for chronic kidney disease. But the data on low-protein diets really border, you know, it's marginal. What's really true is that high-protein diets are bad, but not necessarily that low-protein diets are good. So what we recommend is 0.6 to 0.8 grams of protein uh, per grams per kilogram body weight per day is, is sort of the dose that's probably good. I wouldn't recommend really high doses of protein. And so if you're on a low-carb diet uh, for obesity, but you have kidney disease, it's a little bit problematic. Now, interestingly, we think, now my research suggests that the uric acid is playing a role, and you get uric acid from drinking alcohol, especially beer, and from eating sugar and fructose, and from eating uh, especially processed red meats and also um, some shellfish like lobster and shrimp. So I would predict that those would be the worst in terms of kidney disease. But it's sort of an interesting finding that one of the ways uric acid works is it helps convert glucose to fructose. And so uh, part of my research suggests that the kidney progression that you see with high protein diet is somewhat dependent on converting, making uric acid that converts glucose to fructose. And so if you're on a low carb diet, you won't make much fructose, even though you have uric acid around. So I'm, I'm not as sure in the people who are on a keto diet, if that they may be protected from kidney disease, even though they're eating a relatively high protein diet. Well, my question there, for someone who's eating a high-protein diet, it sounds like they should pay attention to their uric acid levels. If the, if the uric acid level is relatively healthy, like low, say four, you're, you're, you're good, but if you're having the high-protein. But th that's, that's, the, that's, that's the tell, if you will. Yeah, for sure. The serum uric acid predicts the development of kidney disease. Uh, when we raise uric acid in animals, we accelerate kidney disease. Uh, the, you know, there's a lot of data that high uric acid may have a role in chronic kidney disease. Um, there were a couple trials that were negative that have been highly publicized where lowering uric acid didn't protect. But the problem is that they included people with normal uric acids. And the study was flawed. I mean, if you're going to if you're going to test the hypothesis that a high uric acid causes kidney disease, then you should lower uric acid in people with high uric acid. You wouldn't lower uric acid in people with normal uric acid and, and consider that testing the hypothesis. There's no data that low uric acid accelerates kidney disease, but there's a lot of data that a high uric acid accelerates kidney disease. So you, if you're gonna test the hypothesis that lowering uric acid is protective, you gotta treat the right population. So the, the, this is where those studies uh, are flawed. Anyway, but getting back to it, 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 you know, I can definitely accelerate kidney disease in animals by raising their uric acid. Um, and uh, there's definitely a lot of clinical trials that show that lowering uric acid can slow kidney disease. 
And, you know, when you're eating bread, processed meats a lot, if you eat a steak every day, your uric acid probably is going to be pretty high um, and you should get it checked. And it isn't just the risk for kidney disease. If your uric acid starts getting up over six, your risk for gout goes up. And what happens is when your uric acid levels are high, um, they can precipitate, the uric acid can precipitate into crystals in your body. And it can cause, in the kidney, it can cause kidney stones. Those are basically crystals, right? But they can also form crystals in your joints. And it loves the big toe and it loves the knee and it loves the wrist and it loves the fingers. And it can even crystallize in the skin and you can get these ugly looking things on your elbow and on your ear that are crystals of uric acid. And now they're finding that these crystals can go, can occur in the spine and cause back pain in, in people who have a high uric acid. And they can also form crystals in the coronary arteries, in the plaques and uh, in the aorta where they may be playing a role in aneurysms and atherosclerosis and sudden cardiac death and all kinds of things. So you, you want to measure your uric acid. And, and for the women listening, if you, once you, you know, when, when you go through menopause, uh, your uric acid will suddenly go up. And the reason is, is because estrogens lower uric acid. So when you're, you know, when you're younger and you have high estrogen levels, you're, you're sort of protected from gout. So young women are, are generally protected from gout unless they develop kidney disease from some, some cause because the kidneys help get rid of uric acid. Uh, but usually when, when you go through menopause, the risk for heart disease and obesity and diabetes suddenly go up and you become more like a male in terms of your risks. And that's because, in part, because the uric acid suddenly goes up to the same level as in a male. And so gout is much more common in women who are postmenopausal. Uh, chronic kidney disease goes up uh, following menopause. And so it's something to, to put on your checklist. And, you know, if you want to reduce your, if you want to keep uric acid down there in terms of diet, it's reduce sugar, reduce processed red meats like bacon and stuff like that. Reduce uh, alcohol, especially beer. Beers, it isn't just the alcohol and beer, it's the brewer's yeast. So that's the dietary, but there are some other tricks. One is to take vitamin C and vitamin C, 500 milligrams twice a day, besides being a, a great vitamin and an antioxidant that kind of keeps systems healthy, it actually um, lowers uric acid. Uh, it makes you excrete it. And if you have kidney stones, and eat, perhaps even if you don't, taking a little bit of bicarbonate, a bicarbonate tablet, like 650 milligrams twice a day, will help uh, uh, alkalize or it will help make your urine more alkaline um, as opposed to acid. So, you know, you got to know your acid base. There's acid and alkaline. And that helps prevent uric acid stones, and it actually may facilitate uric acid excretion as well. So like if you are <clears throat> on a keto diet and your urine is acidic, you may actually be at increased risk for kidney stones as well as gout. And taking a little vitamin C and drinking a lot of water is also good, just six, eight glasses of water a day. So there are all these tricks you can do to help keep the uric acid down. You don't have to uh, go on drugs to lower uric acid. But if you do develop gout, definitely you should make sure that you get your uric acid to less than six. And uh, because the, you don't want these crystals forming in your spine and in your coronaries and in your kidneys and uh, it's bad enough to be in your joints, but it, it, you don't want serious gout.
So you mentioned kidney stones and in my early thirties, I had that pleasant experience where I actually, I, I had a kidney stone and it was the most painful thing I've ever experienced. It felt like someone was stabbing me in the stomach. I had to go to the ER. I was vomiting. I thought, I thought my appendix burst. I didn't know what was going on, but it was a kidney stone. And then sure enough, a couple of days later out in my urine came this little stone where I just said to myself, this little thing caused that much pain. And if I were to go back to my early 30s, I was definitely not as health forward as I am today. I was eating a lot of conventional meat. If I eat meat now, it's 100% grass fed and so on. I was drinking a ton of alcohol back then. I was probably chronically dehydrated. And I, I, I would start the morning with this monster bowl of like highly processed cottage cheese with Splenda. And, you know, steak at night and, and you know, bacon and like I, I was doing all of the wrong things. And who knows what my uric acid was back then? Well, there are two major causes of kidney stones. One is uric acid stones and one are calcium stones. And uh, interestingly, sugar, the two, there are two major causes for the kidney stones. And one is dehydration. So Right now we're going through heat waves and it's really tough time being outside, especially if you're a worker and trying to keep in the, you know, fine shade and hydrate well is so critical because one of the complications of heat stress and is dehydration and dehydration. When you get dehydrated, your urine gets constant starts to concentrate because you start to hold on to the water as much as possible. So your urine volume goes down and so it gets concentrated. So the calcium and uric acid in the urine go up. And so dehydration is the number one cause of kidney stones and climate changes increasing the risk for kidney stones. And there's a kidney stone belt that goes along the Southern U S and, and then it, that belt's turning into a, big ribbon now it's extending now it's a band and pretty soon it's gonna it's gonna just hit you know getting bigger and bigger but the other big risk factor for kidney stones is soft drinks and uh fructose actually we did studies and fructose increases uric acid in the urine which makes you uh get kidney stones it acidifies the urine and when when uric acids and, and the acids it makes it precipitating into crystals more and um and also it reduces a substance that blocks that helps inhibit calcium stones so sugar actually increases your risk for calcium stones too so uh the number one the number one and number two risk factors for kidney stones are dehydration and soft drinks those are the number one and number two there are many other risk factors, but number one and number two, that's what I always start with when I see a patient with it. And you, you're young and athletic, uh, probably dehydration and alcohol definitely dehydrates. That's probably was your main one, but you, you know, eating all that rich meat, uric acid was quite possible as well. So, uh, yeah, it's hard to know what your, your stone was due to just stay hydrated, my friend. Well, on, on that note, we are experiencing an unprecedented heat wave and hydration is very top of mind for many people and electrolytes and sodium, specifically salt. A lot of conflicting advice on sodium and specifically salt. Can you touch oh, on that? I'm an expert on salt. I can really help there. There is a lot of misconceptions in the field. Oh my God. Um, but I've, I, I, you know, I've published 200 papers on salt and I, honestly I've studied it in humans I've studied it in in animals and, and and here's the story about salt we all need salt right we all need salt we need water uh, super low salt diets bad super high salt diets bad you want to be the Goldilocks principle you want to eat just right if I want to make an animal hypertensive, uh, and especially if they have low-grade kidney disease, I put, I put them on salt, a high-salt diet to an animal that is predisposed to high, high blood pressure will get hypertension. People who say salt doesn't cause hypertension, 
It doesn't cause hypertension in a normal individual. When you eat salt, uh, it won't cause chronic hypertension, but your blood pressure actually goes up within, uh, within minutes of eating a salty food. And we actually did studies like that. We gave, we did a study where we gave soup to, uh, uh, volunteers. And one of the great things about creamy soup is you can hide salt in it. So we gave a high salt soup versus a low salt soup. And when you eat just drinking a bowl of soup, your blood pressure is going to, of salty soup, your blood, your blood pressure is going to go up, you know, 20 points, you know, for 30 minutes, 15 points. I mean, it goes up. Actually, you know, it may not go up that much. In some people it does, but maybe it'll only go up five points, but it will go up. Now, interestingly, if you, what we found was the what, reason it goes up is that the salt, when you eat salt, the concentration of salt in your blood goes up. And it's actually the concentration that counts in the blood. It's not the amount of salt. So for, we did a study where we gave the salty soup with water. So you had to drink a quart of water uh, or two quarts of water with the soup, or I, I should say a liter. And, uh, you know, if you drink a liter of water with the salty soup, you could block the rise in blood pressure and it blocked the rise in the serum sodium. And so it's actually, if you drank a lot of water, you could block the effects of salt because the way salt is working is by raising the salt concentration in your blood that triggers this, uh, you know, a switch in your body where you release vasopressin and all these other things. And interestingly, we found that salt is used to help make fructose. And so if you put an animal on salt, uh, they will start to convert glucose to fructose. So, uh, and that's related to the high serum sodium again. It's through the same mechanism when the, what we call osmolality or serum sodium goes up, it can, it activates the enzyme that converts glucose to fructose. So we actually could make animals fat by just putting them on salt, but it takes a while. It takes longer than sugar, but if they're on a kind of a high carb diet, being, getting the salt accelerates this, uh, ability to become fat and diabetic really quickly. And, uh, and in fact, if you put a human on a high salt diet, really high salt diet, they will be insulin resistant within five days proven out there. So salt, high concentrations of salt are not good. French fries are worse when the salted French fries are worse than French fries without salt. Even eating salted popcorn is going to raise your serum sodium and is going to activate these switches that are, you know, and uh, yes, your weight will go up. Part of that is the salt retention, but part of it is that you're stimulating uh, starch, what we call glycogen deposition in your tissues. Is all salt created equal in the way that a hundred percent grass fed, you know, bison is not the same as ultra processed conventional bologna is Himalayan pink salt crystals, the same as, you know, conventional table salt at Burger King. So sodium chloride is sodium chloride. So, but a lot of these salts have magnesium chloride and other things in it. Right. So, um, and there, there can be other things with, with the, the food besides, uh, you know, there can be good or bad things with it. So if you eat an ultra-processed salami that's been injected with salt water and all these other things, the salt in ultra-processed food is just really dangerous because they're injecting it with sugar and salt and all kinds of things. I mean, that is like asking for it. You know, if you're eating... Uh, you know, food that has natural sodium in it because of you, you're probably not getting a large amount of salt, but you, you know, there are foods that are naturally salty and just stay well hydrated. You know, uh, animals like salt because it can help them survive, right? So deer will look for salt licks and it's been shown it helps them store, you know, it helps them uh, gain weight before the winter comes. And some of that is fat. It actually, uh, some people add salt to the feed for animals to try to get them fatter. Um, and uh, so 
but 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 salt is you know it's it's there's meant to be a good side and a bad side and you we just have to you know actually i recommend everyone to get their serum sodium or serum salt concentration measured you know it's measured all the time and usually the doctor doesn't tell you what your sodium is so when you go and get a blood test, the basic chemistries, there's this thing called sodium, Na, and there's chloride, Cl, but Na is the important one to look at. And they say normal is like 135 to one, or 137 to 144. And so most doctors look at this, and usually you're in there. You're in between 137 and 144, and they, no one says anything. But the NIH, the National Institute of Health Aging Institute, just published a big paper, and it's very consistent with our work, that the serum sodium makes a difference. So if your serum sodium is over 142 and under 145, it's, quote, normal, but it dramatically increases your risk for uh, diseases as you get older, for obesity, diabetes, dementia, all these illnesses. And if your serum sodium is 138 to 142, you're actually protected. And if your serum sodium is under 138, that's not good either. You want to be in the right spot. And, and, and the reason, if you have a 144, you are not drinking enough water. And if you look at people who are obese or diabetic, the vast majority of them are drinking much less water and eating more salt than you are. Uh, you know, and so... It makes a difference. I'm sorry. you. Uh, no, so I'll, I'll, I'll use me as an example because I think it speaks to the heat wave and people who are active and the need for electrolytes. So me, for example, my sodium is 136. And I, and I live in Miami and it's hot as hell right now. And I'm very active and I go to the gym. And I find myself taking a lot more electrolytes with a, a lot more sodium because – the heat is, I feel it, but so I am probably over consuming, right? But let's talk about the, like in this heat wave, I think, how does one find that sweet spot? It sounds like the more water you drink, because you need to drink more water right now, the PSA is stay more hydrated, the more salt you can have. You don't want to just have electrolytes and don't drink enough water. And you don't want to drink too much water with no electrolytes. Is that fair to say? Right. So it used to be, okay, so let's get into this. Uh, this moves us into sports drinks too. And uh, I used to be the Gatorade professor and I was, I'm friends with all the Gatorade inventors. And uh, the Gatorade was invented by kidney specialists, as you probably know. Now you're repenting. <laughs> uh, although I'm friends with them, I'm not getting any royalties. <laughs> but but let me let's just talk about this. I mean, it, you know, when you're out exercising, you are losing water and you're losing salt. Sweat is salt water, right? And um, and so you can get dehydrated. And when you're dehydrated, you're not just uh, missing water. You're you're, you're missing. You're, you need salt. You need both water and salt. So what they did long time ago was uh, they would give salt tablets and water. And the trouble with salt tablets is that uh, to absorb salt in the gut, you actually need to have a little glucose present because the transporter involves requiring glucose. And in fact, the invention of Gatorade came from the discovery that salt tabs and water aren't enough, that you needed to give glucose to help absorb the, so the salts. And you need some potassium and you need uh, other things. And so Bob Cade, when he invented Gatorade, was trying to figure out what people were losing in their sweat and how to replace it in a way that could help keep your electrolytes normal and to keep you well hydrated. And thus came Gatorade. Uh, now, there wasn't a lot of fructose in the original Gatorade, which is a good thing. But a small amount of fructose actually was found to be beneficial for the super athlete because it helps, helps the glucose be absorbed. If you have a little bit of fructose present, it actually helps the glucose get absorbed better 
and it, it can improve performance. So you have this interesting thing where high amounts of fructose, like in a soft drink, you know, absolutely increases your risk for obesity and insulin resistance and diabetes. And then you have these athletes who need sports drinks that include a tiny, you know, small amounts of fructose, glucose to replace. Also, when you exercise, you're burning glucose and you can get hypoglycemic, actually, if you don't get some carbs. So, so you, it's a complicated story, but it, in the setting of being out, outside in the heat and sweating, you need salt, you need water, you need potassium, you need glucose, probably need a little bit of fructose. And so these soft, you know, the sports drinks industry kind of developed around that. Now, unfortunately, a lot of sports drinks tend to put too much sugar in. And so there are these low sugar, low high fructose corn syrup or, or low, lower sugar uh, sports drinks, which I prefer. And I, I think the ideal glucose is probably three to 4% and the ideal fructose is probably 2%. But there are drinks out there that kind of are low, low sugar sports drinks. And that's sort of what I recommend. So initially, we were going to talk about fructose, sugar. <laughs> and and metabolic health and when we started with kidneys and and I, I definitely i know you're short on time and i don't think we're gonna cover all of that in the next couple minutes so I, I say we 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 have you back to go deep on fructose and glucose and sugar and we'll make this episode the episode this is the episode on hydration and kidney health which i think is something we don't talk about and just to, it in, any closing thoughts? I thought this was so great because I don't think we pay attention to our, our kidneys. Well, I just, I would like to let people know that I have a book called Nature Wants Us to Be Fat. Um, and that book does talk a lot about kidney health and hydration, uh, uric acid. Uh, and, you know, it really summarizes a lot of research. It talks about sports drinks and things like that. But it also has a very big section on you know, what causes obesity, diabetes, cancer, you know, the role in cancer and pregnancy issues. And, you know, so it has other things in the book that you might find of interest. So that's, and I have a website, drrichardjohnson.com. And so you can always look at, you know, other videos or things like that on, on that site. And I, I have an access where you can download papers and stuff like that. Well, your book is excellent. Your website is a tremendous resource. And I, I promise we have to have you back to go deep on glucose, fructose, and sugar. Deal? Deal, Jason. Thank you so much. Excellent. Thank you, Rick.